His love <clears throat> will sail forever, bright and shining, strong and free, like an ark of peace and safety on the sea. take our Bible and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 1. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. And again, we've been dealing with the Jew as of late, and we talk, 
have been talking about their past. And so we're going to continue and finish up that portion of the, uh, uh, I guess, um, lesson on the Jews. But anyway, Romans chapter 11, and then we'll continue on. But we're going to finalize the Jews' past here, and we've been addressing a number of issues along the way of which we'll touch on very, very briefly until, and then we can get into the new material. And uh, so we see here in chapter 11, Romans 11, in verse 1, the Bible says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. It says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Well, I'll tell you what, what we've been learning along the way as we've been dealing with the Jews is that God's not done with them yet. And we're going to see as we continue in our study, as we deal with their present and then their future, how much and how more true that is than ever. And again, we have recognized and understood that, sadly enough, the Jews have been paying an awful price for that day when they cried, crucify him. That day that they said, let his blood be upon us and our children. Well, it has indeed, hasn't it? They've been scattered throughout the continents of the, the world throughout these last couple of thousand years, and boy, have they been paying a great price. But the only way to believe somehow, I mean, that the only way that the Jewish race could have possibly continued, in light of everything that they have faced and all the obstacles they've had to overcome, is simply that God has brought it about. That somehow He has some great work for them to do and still has even more work to do than he did in the past even. I'm excited as I think about what God's going to do with the Jewish people, and I'm really glad he'll be doing it after I'm gone. Because if you know anything about the time when he's going to begin dealing with them again, you'll be glad you're gone too. That's during the tribulation period, and we'll look a little bit more at that along the way. But we talked about what has the Jew brought to to the world. Well, they brought monotheism. They brought the oracles of God. They provided us a Savior, the Messiah. And uh, we said, okay, well, let's talk a little bit about their past. And so we addressed uh, the call of Abraham, and we looked into him for just a little bit. We talked about the fact that they went into bondage, and there for 430 years they found themselves enslaved in Egypt, and God supernaturally delivered them. We talked about the times of the judges, how that for 450 years, God sent them saviors. Interesting terminology, isn't it? Yet we saw that there was a somewhat of a cycle that took place over and over and over again when you deal with the judges and the people of Israel. You see the blessing. You note the rebellion. Then there came the punishment. Then came repentance. And once again, after God had begun to bless and establish them, they declined again and went through the same exact process over and over and over again. As much as we marvel at their seemingly I don't know, just ridiculous attitude. How in the world could you do this to God? And then do it over and over and over again. The truth is, we do the same thing. I mean, really, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Sometimes how we take him for granted and his blessings in our life. And you know, the Jew throughout his history has done that. 
And sadly enough, we do the same thing. May we learn from their mistakes. That's why the Bible says that the Old Testament was given to us for our learning, so that we could avoid those things. They say there's two ways to learn in life. There's the hard way and the easy way. The easy way is listening and watching other people and uh, learning from their mistakes instead of your own. But let's be honest. Most of us, the only lessons we've really learned in our life, for the most part, come when we mess up. We have to pay the price. Well, we try to train our children and say, listen, don't make the same stupid mistakes I make. Don't do those things. Make it right the first time. Learn from other people's mistakes. But unfortunately, most people fail to do so. Only the wise ones don't. And so if you've got a young person in your life or your family that has chosen to follow righteousness and avoid uh, falling into the traps and temptations that the devil has offered so many of us and we failed, man, you ought to just thank God that they're wise enough to avoid that. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of commitment to do that. This idea that somehow, you know, uh, I don't know, we almost glorify the person who's been in sin. You know, we almost make it like, wow, that, well, look what God did in their life. Yeah, well, look what God did in the life of a young man or young lady that never had to go into the world. You know, we make such a big deal of everybody overcoming sin. What about people that never had to get into it? I mean, why don't we make a big deal of that too? You know, I just think that's important because sometimes our young people over here that have never been into deep sin, and by the way, there's nothing good about deep sin, by the way, young people, even though the world will tell you it's wonderful. Uh, you're going to avoid a lot of problems. And you know what? You're the wise ones. You're the smart ones if you don't, and you learn from other people's mistakes. <clears throat> but nonetheless, we learned some things there. And then we went to the kings. Man, I'll tell you what, uh, they wanted a king bad, didn't they? So much so they demanded a king. And God told Samuel, he said, listen, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me they're rejecting. So go ahead and give them their king. But make sure you tell them exactly what kind of king he's going to be. Boy, he told them. And I'll tell you what, they straightened right up and said, boy, we don't need a king like that. Man, that would be a mess. I think we're done, man. Forget it. We'll just stick with God. That isn't what happened, is it? No, they went ahead and said, no, we want a king anyway. But what we did learn, and I think this is something very important to remember, what we did learn from that was this, that it's important that as leaders we don't give those who follow us reasons or justification in their mind to rebel against God. Because we noted that Samuel and his sons were not necessarily in a position to I guess, exhibit the best that God had for the people. I mean, his sons were wicked and sinful. Samuel had obviously made some errors and mistakes in that area, and here he is getting old and going off the scene, and what's left there is the, the children who are wicked and sinful. Well, the people feel justified now in requiring and asking for a king. And I think it's important that we as leaders recognize the fact, too, that we can cause people to feel justified in their sin, too, if we do not paint the right picture and follow through with the right uh, means and, and accomplish what God intends. And so we can put ourselves in a bad spot and we can ultimately lead others into a bad place as well. So we noted the kings and we talked about them and we said King Saul reigned for 40 years, David for 40, S uh, Solomon for 40. And then, of course, came the split of the kingdom. You had Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam takes the 10 northern tribes we see Rehoboam taking the southern two tribes. Those southern tribes are ultimately called Judah. Their capital is Jerusalem. 
We see the northern ten tribes under the leadership, of course, of Jeroboam. They're referred to as Israel in the Bible at that point, and their capital is Samaria. Well, that's where it ends now as they, they find themselves uh, uh, divided, and ultimately we're going to find them in captivity. And that's what we're going to talk about now, the captivities, the captivities. Because we know that in 975, that's when the kingdom split. But then after that, you have 19 kings under the lead, in the northern tribes that were all bad. None of them were good at all. And they would go into captivity in 721 B.C. You'd find that there were just about eight or so good kings in the, 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 northern, or the southern tribes, uh, you know, Judah. And so they go into captivity in 606 B.C. actually, and there's three different times that they are actually moved into captivity, finalized, uh, they finally end up completely in captivity by 586. But nonetheless, we see that these two, this division is moving toward captivity. And so they end up in a bad spot. One may have ended up uh, holding out another hundred or so years more than the other, but they went into captivity. The northern tribes into Assyrian captivity. The southern tribes into Babylonian captivity. Now, why did these northern and southern tribes ultimately end up in captivity? That's a good question. And it's not a complicated answer. You probably already know the answer. But instead of us just saying what the answer is, let's find out what it says in the Bible. So let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn over to the book of Lamentation, chapter 1, verse 5. Lamentation, chapter 1, verse 5. I thought I'd start with one of those little ones give you a good chance to get a sweat going as you hear pages turning and you think that everybody else has found it except you. You're not the only one. There's others that are going to be searching. And some will stop turning just to make us believe they found it. You know how that goes, right? You don't know. Okay, good for you. I do, however. <laughs> I've been there a few times. Trust me. All right, while you're turning to pages and while we're getting there, let's go ahead and have a quick word of prayer. Father, bless us. We need you tonight. Lord, we're excited about uh, just the word of God. Now, Lord, teach us something from it. And Lord, use it in our lives. We want to be better for you. We want to honor you. Now, Father, I pray you'd fill me with your spirit. And Lord, may you just guide my tongue. I do feel a little bit out of sorts tonight. I don't know why. But Lord, I'm just asking you now, Lord, to bring a calm to me a clarity of mind, an ability, Father, to just uh, um, take the scriptures and really handle them in a proper and a very uh, meaningful way. Lord, may you use me, and Father, may you speak to others. Tonight, we want to leave here better for having been here. Now, Lord, uh, do a miracle in our hearts, our lives. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Lamentation chapter 1, verse 5. It says, her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. So when we take this passage right off the bat, Jeremiah writing the Lamentations. Man, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Prophet. He was one of those prophets that his heart broke as he looked over Israel and as he, as, I mean, as he looked over Judah and as he looked over the people of God, he could not help himself. Man, he just wept and he thought, oh my, we've gone the wrong direction. Oh my, look what God has brought forth. The enemies have overcame us and here we are in a mess. Man, as he looked over the destruction, as he recognized the, the, the punishment of God, he just broke 
down and cried. And here in the passage, he says, the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. We know what transgressions are, right? We could just simply say for her, her sins. Notice Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. <clears throat> Ezekiel is considered one of the major prophets. You know, there's minor prophets and major prophets. You say, well, what makes the major and minor? And how long the book is. That's about it. It's not that one's message is more major than the other or minor than the other. I asked my Bible college uh, teacher the same question. I said, hey, how's come one's a major and one's a minor? Does that mean one's bigger, better, or whatever? And they were like, well, I don't know why they do that. I said, then why do we teach it? You're not supposed to ask those questions. But anyway, Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 21. We're dealing again with Israel's, or, or the Jews' past, Israel's past, and this case now we're getting into a divided kingdom. But notice here, as they're, they're going into captivity, why in the world did they go into captivity? I mean, think about it. I mean, here they are. The, the Judah's going to be 70 years in captivity. 70 years under enemy rule. 70 years, they'll have been removed from their land. They'll have been brought into another. For what? Why would he destroy, in a sense, the nation to some degree? Wreck the city. Destroy it. Why, why would God do that? Well, here we go, Ezekiel 39, 21. And I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward, and the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity because of their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword, according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Man, I'll tell you what, I, that sounds pretty rough. That Assyrian captivity must have been pretty rough there. I don't know, I'm glad I didn't live in those days. And I think America's got some issues, but I'll guarantee you one thing, I wouldn't have been an Israelite in those days. Man, that would have been a mess. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 29. Get back here to Judah and, and the Babylonian thing. Doesn't matter whether it's Israel, doesn't matter whether it was Judah, because these Jews and whatever tribes they were, whenever they went into captivity, it was about the same story over and over again. Death and destruction. Slavery all over again. And in some cases, they sought to assimilate people into their culture. We're going to see that here in just a moment. Notice what it says in Nehemiah 9.29, verse 31, through 31, excuse me, 9.29 through 31. Here in this passage, it says, And testifiest against them, that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet they dealt proudly, and hearkened not unto my commandments. Isn't that interesting? He says, they dealt proudly, and then he says, hearken not unto thy commandments. I, I, I tell you what, if I gave you five chances... To answer this question correctly, I think you'd get it on the first one. 
Here would be the question. If I, if I asked you this question, what always precedes breaking God's commandments, not hearkening to God's commandments? Pride, right? They dealt proudly and hearken not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. That's scary, isn't it? And withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. Wow. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testified against them in thy spirit, in the, by spirit in the prophets, yet would they not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. In general, we note that they literally, they just sinned against God and his word. Notice what it says here about the passage, though. See, they wouldn't submit to his headship or his authority. But it says, but in pride they, they bowed up, basically. Notice here, they became stiff-necked. Again, see what happens here in the passage. It says, it says and um, <clears throat> let's see, they, and they withdrew the shoulder. Okay, now, that, that's kind of one of those things where if you look it up, you're going to find that it's dealing with, like, uh, animals that are going to be put in a harness or, or put together or yoked together. And when, when that thing starts to come down on them, they kind of pull away because they know what's coming. It's kind of like one of the kids in Sunday school. You go to grab their shoulder and they go, you ever have that happen? Of course you have. Notice again, the passage is pretty simple. And, and at first, I, I actually had to look it up because I'm thinking, what, what does that actually mean? I mean, they withdrew the shoulder. Well, it, 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 it just simply points to the fact that they stepped backward. They withdrew, of course. They backslid, if you will. And the Bible goes on to say, they hardened their neck and they would not hear. Now, I, I, I used to wrestle in high school, okay, in junior high and high school. And when we, we, we went to wrestling practice, the coaches always taught us a very important principle. Here's what they'd say. They'd say, now, now listen, wherever the head goes, the body follows. Wherever the head goes, the body will follow. Okay, so what do you do in wrestling? Uh, come, on, come on up here, Malachi, let me show them what we do. Okay, so for instance, come on up. So Malachi's a big guy, but if I can control his head, I can send him wherever I want him. I can make him go any which way I want. Why? Because wherever his head goes, his body will follow. And listen, that's a real important principle, whether it's in football. What do you got in your hair, man? <laughs> Nothing, I'm just messing with it. But anyway, whether it's, <laughs> I had to do that, I'm sorry. Whether it's football or, or whatever it might be. Wherever that young man's head goes, that's why in wrestling you, you do a cross, uh, uh, you know, cross, don't, don't, I won't do it, but you come across his face right here across the bridge of his nose, and it turns his head back, and guess what it does? It throws his head back, and it brings his body back. It opens him up. Wherever the head goes, that's where the body goes. Thank you. You did a great job. You need a comb. Let me know later. I got one. I just wish I had that much hair. 
Because if I had that hair, I'd look good. <laughs> they hardened their neck. They hardened their neck. They wouldn't hear. What are they saying? You're not going to turn me any direction. You're not going to lead me anywhere. You're not going to guide me no matter what. You go ahead and try, God. That's what they did. And that's why they went into captivity. Because they transgressed God's law, because they sinned against the God of the universe, because they chose to rebel and reject His authority in their life. They became stiff-necked and they pulled back. They withdrew the shoulder. You ever find yourself withdrawing the shoulder? You ever find yourself becoming stiff-necked? I'm not going nowhere and I'm not doing it. Nope, I won't. You know what we're good at? We're good at not doing it so much to God. We just do it to God-ordained authority. I don't care what my husband says. That's stupid. I won't do what he says. I'm going to stiffen up my neck. I'm going to withdraw the shoulder. Teenagers say, oh, I, I love the Lord. He's the greatest. But Mom, Dad, don't you? No, you ain't telling me nothing. You think I'm stupid? I'm a teenager now. I'm not some little kid to be told what to do all the time. I'm not stupid. We'll stiffen up our necks and we withdraw the shoulder. Fella, he's, he's like, well, you know, I'm glad I'm the man. Yeah, and he goes to work, and you know what he does? He looks his boss in the eye and says, I don't care what you need. You told me to do this, but I'll do it my way because I know better. You just, you may hold the position, but I'm really the one that runs the show around here. Oh, really? Let me tell you something. When we do that to God-ordained authority in our lives, we're doing that to him. That's a problem. So anyway, that's just a thought, and I mean, I think it's important that we understand that. They sinned in committing adultery even. I mean, they, they offered their children on the altar of false gods. They corrupted themselves by participating in ungodly acts of immorality. They failed to keep the Sabbath as was required according to the law of God. I mean, all of these things. And you know what we learn from all of that? It's real simple, isn't it? Sin always leads to captivity. We can't figure it out, though. We keep binding ourselves over and over again. We keep thinking, I'm free to do as I please. I've got this freedom. But in reality, in the freedom, we're binding ourselves most often because we're being rebellious or disobedient because sin always leads to captivity. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sin. That's serious business. With the captivity of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem, the times of the Gentiles began. At least that's how it's viewed or how it's spoken of in the Bible. Turn to Luke 21, 24. Luke chapter 21, verse 24. The times of the Gentiles. Remember, Israel has been a, 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 a worldwide leader at one point. 
And then, of course, they, they're divided. And once they become divided, they begin to, you know, the northern tribes just worship idols. That's just they go directly into idolatry. The southern tribes find themselves following after the world as well. And every once in a while, a good king comes along and says, enough's enough. we got to get back to God. And that goes on for a while. But by 721 B.C., the northern tribes are in Assyrian captivity. By 586, southern tribes are in, excuse me, yeah, Assyrian captivity, 721, and Babylonian captivity in 586. And so here we are now, the times of the Gentiles. In Luke 21, 24, it says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. When Nebuchadnezzar comes into uh, into Jerusalem and uh, sends his troops, they end up destroying the temple and wrecking Jerusalem. They just destroy it, demolish it. The times of the Gentiles has begun. And the times of the Gentiles basically just signifies a time when the Gentiles are going to rule and be in charge. And that's going to be the case until Christ returns, by the way. Until he actually returns and assumes his rightful place on the throne of, 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 of David. And of course, that'll be after the tribulation period. And that's really when the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. That's when it'll finally be come to a conclusion. Israel will once again be elevated and exalted among the nations. But the times of the Gentiles, we live in them even today. Now in Daniel, we get an interesting glimpse of the enemy's strategy in this captivity, how they went about accomplishing the captivity. Look, if you would, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. And again, often we look at this through the eyes of Daniel and talk about what a great young man he was, and he was indeed a great young man. But I also want to note how wise this king was. Notice what the king does. Again, remember, he's gone into a foreign land and he's occupied and taken over a city and literally demolished it, and now he's going to bring captives back to Babylon. Notice what happens here in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. The king spake, notice this, and the king spake, Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. He spake unto Asphanaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Now I want you to notice that he's sending him to bring, he says, you bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. The king is seeking out the most promising young people that are available. That's what he's doing. The most promising. And again, they've gone in and they've demolished and wrecked and ruined families. They did, they've killed moms and dads and others. And here they are now. Get those, those most promising young people and bring them to us. The ones that have no blemish in them. 
I want, to, I want the best looking young people you can find. I want the most well-favored ones. I want the ones that are skillful in all wisdom. I want the ones that are cunning in knowledge. I want those that are understanding in science. I want those that are smart, sharp, and good-looking and have some real potential. That's what he's saying. And ultimately, his goal was to assimilate them into the culture. Notice he's going to teach them the tongue of the Chaldean. He wants to assimilate them into the culture so ultimately they can stand before him in service. His goal is to take the best of those that are Jews and make them part of his cabinet to ultimately allow them to help progress his nation and make it stronger and better. So here's the thought. The enemy or Satan is always seeking out the best young people. He's always doing that. Hey, if you're a loser, he probably don't need you. He's already got you. But the devil's always going to look for the best. Now, these guys on the front, we ain't got no good looking ones. But outside of that, you might be smart, okay? Very few young people that look like me when you were growing up. Amazing. Had it all. Just read the list. But the truth is, the devil's looking for you guys right there. He's looking for the best that God has. He's looking for the best. You got, I mean, you got to keep that in mind. You say, man, I don't know why God's tempting, the devil's tempting me all the time. I'll tell you why. Because he wants you. Because you're the best. And the devil's going to come looking for you. And he's going to throw things in your face. I mean, honestly, he promised you the best provisions, as we see here in Daniel. He's going to promise you the finest foods, the grandest lifestyle, the best positions, and prosperity. Those are things he's going to offer you potentially. And you know what? Every single young person and adult in earshot tonight has to decide whether or not they're going to follow Christ or succumb to the temptations or the temporal pleasures of this world and its master, Satan. Because he's going to offer some good things. Isn't it amazing as you look around you in the world and how many people profess Christianity, but how many people hold on to the world? So where do you go to church? I don't. Oh, yeah, I go to church. Well, what do you do? You know, what do you do for the Lord? Well, you know, I go to church. I know, but what do you do for the Lord? I go to church. Really? Seriously? I'm sorry, but that don't sound like you're really sacrificing a whole lot for the Lord here. Doesn't sound like you're giving them a whole lot there. I know Muslims that go to church and bow their knee five times a day. I'm wondering, wait a second, how come somebody that worships a false idol is more committed to their God than we are? Makes no sense. The God of this world is after you. There's no wonder he's casting some crumbs at your feet. Trying to make you think somehow that a few dollars are more important than spirituality in your life. And boy, I tell you what, he tempts pastors and he tempts people and he tempts everybody that names the name of Christ that has any kind of potential at all for him, for the Lord. He's going to do that. I think of Moses over in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Moses is a perfect example of what the believer ought to be in the position or the, the, the attitude and the outlook we ought to have. It's amazing, really. 
You say, yeah, but Moses, man, he was lucky. He was, he was like 40 years old before he finally got right with God. You know he had a good time. Whatever. You don't know nothing. You think you do, but you don't necessarily know anything he went through. Was you there? I wasn't. I don't know. I've read books, and I know. Yeah, I know. Let me ask you something. Have you ever found it harder to give up something that you've learned to love or something you never had? Which is easier? I find it a lot easier to give up things I never had. Oh, it's easy to give something. Well, I never had it anyway. No big deal, right? But would you got it? Hey, let me ask you something. How hard is it for you to give up your health now after you've had it? You say, well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about Moses now who had everything at his disposal. Yeah, maybe he did have opportunity to sin. I don't know. We know it talks about the pleasure of sin for a season, but I'm going to tell you this much. It's a lot harder to give it up once you've had it than it is never having it. And yet he did. Notice what the Bible says about old uh, Moses here in Hebrews chapter 11. What, a, what an amazing passage. He says, I'll find it here in a second. I'm trying to get there. See, I, I, you know how I need, I need those cheaters. Remember I told you about those cheaters? I'm telling you, I'm getting really mixed up here. Here we go, chapter 11. Verse 24. By faith Moses, when he was come to years... I don't know how old that is, but that don't sound like 40. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You, you know, and I don't know how this all went down, but based on what it says here, it says, when he was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. Is it possible that Moses spent 15 years or more of his life warring with his Jewish heritage unwilling to take the name of Pharaoh, and he literally found himself punished over and over and over again for it? I'm just wondering. I'm sure his mother begged him over and over again, please don't do this, please don't do this. It could go so easy for you. You could be the king even. You could be Pharaoh. I don't know, I'm just wondering. I wasn't there, but I know this much. Either way, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I wonder how long a season lasts. Isn't it funny how people think they're getting over on sin? Oh, I've got friends. They've been, a, they've been drinking for years, and they're still doing fine. Well, what's a season? It's going to come to an end sooner or later. Well, I mean, they've been involved in immorality. Man, let me tell you, they're really tearing it up. It's, man, it's crazy. They're doing just fine. I'm the one over here suffering. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, just kind of curious, how long's a season? And then what's the price? It's easy to, to see things 
kind of skewed and upside down. And that would have been easy for Moses. But the Bible says here, he refused to be called the sons of, son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Watch this. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. What it's basically saying is he understood there would be nothing he would ever give up that he would not receive over and over and over again for. That, that there's no way he could ever give more to God than he would get back in return. The reward would always exceed the sacrifice. That's what it's talking about. <clears throat> we'll talk about it at the funeral, but Whitey would always say to me as we close, he'd say, he'd say, now preacher, don't tell anybody I'm doing this because I want my reward in heaven, not on earth. He'd say that all the time. I'd say, yeah, but it's no big deal. I just want to say, thanks, thanks, brother. Don't, don't, don't even thank me. I want my reward in heaven. Well, he's getting it. Let me ask you something. Right now, the world looks pretty good while you're in it. But if we truly believe what we say we do, when will we start really living like it? When will we really buy in all the way? When will we, like Moses, say, you know what? It's worth the sacrifice because I'll never be able to outgive God. I just want to honor him and please him because I want my reward in heaven. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time we've had together. Lord, you're always good to us. We thank you so much. And oh, I thank you for this people that's gathered today and or just their willingness, their desire, Father, to hear from you. We do pray, Father, for your leadership. Again, Lord, bless us and help us, Lord. We are needy people tonight. We're excited about uh, just what you have done in our lives and, and, and what you will do. Lord, please uh, do a miracle. We need you. Father, help us to see the world for what it is, to not get so blinded by its things, to be enamored by the glit and glitter that the, world, that the devil offers us. May we, Father, stay faithful to you in the midst of it all. We'll thank you and we'll praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand every head bowed, every eye closed as the music